talking to parents about their young children and COVID vaccines. So you have to first understand your patient and the people that you're speaking to in the community to understand their concerns. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The fate of outdoor dining post-COVID shutdowns. This is part of an overall long-term change in the city of San Diego where we should be doing this everywhere. We should be vacating streets everywhere. We should be providing outdoor dining. So this is a really good step in the right direction. How veterans are being stopped from getting treatment outside the VA health system and we're spotlighting spies in an excerpt from the Cinema Junkie podcast. That's ahead on Midday Edition. After receiving the go-ahead from the FDA and CDC, coronavirus vaccinations for kids aged 5 through 11 are starting today. The lower-dose vaccine by Pfizer and BioNTech now has emergency use authorization for the younger age group, opening up the vaccine to some 28 million children in the U.S. Yet many parents remain reluctant to have their children vaccinated. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that only about 30 percent of parents with children aged 5 through 11 were eager to have their kids vaccinated. Here to talk more about vaccinating younger children and talking to parents about it is Dr. Bob Gillespie, a physician with Sharp Healthcare and founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. Dr. Gillespie, welcome. Thank you so much, Jade, for having me. What have medical professionals learned over the course of the pandemic about how best to talk to their patients about the vaccine? You know, one of the things that we as scientists have a tendency to do is to rely on data. And when you're speaking to people in the community, their reality is not always found in the data that's been present. Give you an example. One of the concerns that parents have between the age of five and 11 is fertility and their children getting the vaccines at such an early age. The data has not shown any issues concerning fertility. On the scientific side, we're more worried about things such as myocarditis. Though it's rare, it's something that can occur. So you have to first understand your patient and the the people that you're speaking to in the community to understand their concerns. So that's the first step. And the second thing is to be armed with the information that is factual and give both sides of the story. Hmm. And do these strategies change when we're talking about younger kids like this new 5 through 11 age group? Without a question. If you look at what we have done in San Diego County, and people over the age of 65 and older, we vaccinated over 97% of that population, at least one shot, 97%. And the reason for that is our argument is that in that age group, the risk of hospitalization and death is quite significant. When you look at kids five to 11, you cannot make that same argument, quite the opposite. We know the risk of hospitalization and death is almost non-existent. It's very small, not non-existent, but small. So the arguments have to be based on other issues. What are the differences in immunocompromised patients or those with pre-existing conditions? Are they more likely to benefit? What about minority patients? Are they more likely? The issues related to mental health and socialization that occurs as we distance ourselves with the fear of getting COVID and our learning changes, our inability to educate our young children. How does that impact? 
And lastly, the issue that's a real, a really real issue, what about the impact of long COVID and what it might entail and or might cause issues with our young children? And of course, the issue of how we transmit within our families if our young children are not vaccinated. And vaccine hesitancy for kids seemed to be on the mind of many committee members at yesterday's CDC advisory committee meeting, uh, which voted 14-0 in support of recommending the vaccine to kids age 5 through 11. Here's what Dr. Helen Talbot had to say in that meeting. We have reviewed this data, and I have vaccinated my kids because I feel like it's safe. Um, And I would not recommend something if I did not feel that way. And so I think it's really important Um, To just reiterate what many of us have said, we are parents and we have given this to our children. Is this more personal approach effective at connecting with patients in your view? I think a personal approach is effective as long as you also provide some reasonable reasons for making that decision. In the case of a physician who comes from typically a middle class, upper middle class would be probably a better characterization the argument would be more along the lines of preventing the social concerns and mental health concerns that have come with not being vaccinated. The issue of seven to 8% of potentially getting long COVID, which is a condition where you have symptoms that last greater than 12 weeks out from an infection with COVID. So these become very important issues, not the issue of death and hospitalization. However, in minority populations, on the other hand, the vast majority of those people who did end up with illnesses were, uh, it was a high percentage in minority groups. So a different view may be in that population compared to a a majority population. So you really have to target your message to an individual group as you consider these variables. And what do you think the medical community gets right and wrong when it comes to listening to patients' concerns? You know, I was fascinated as I looked at that Kaiser study. And one of the first things, if you look at parents' concerns, as I mentioned earlier, is is one of fertility. You know, this is something that we have not even seen seen a signal that reduction in fertility occurs with the use of these vaccines. So I think one of the things is we have to focus on what the parents' concerns are. And I think if we do that, we have a better chance of making a difference in getting this group patients vaccinated. In your Sharp Healthcare biography, you wrote, building trust, which does not necessarily take an extended period of time, is the key to helping a patient make the correct informed decision. How do you approach building that trust with patients? In that same study you've mentioned, that was one of the concerns that parents had, particularly minority patients, and that was being able to go to a location that they trusted, that they have trust in. That's particularly in the minority population that that becomes an issue. What you do for trust, because of historical issues, often in people of color, it is important to have someone that looks that's providing that message. When it comes to anyone in the general population, trust is built in from a caregiver that that individual trusts. So that is, if you go into a doctor's office who you've seen for a number of years, that's certainly gonna provide a level of trust that will allow you to discuss the vaccine. I speak with every single one of my patients about getting a vaccine. Even though I'm a cardiologist, it's extremely important that we speak with all of our patients because they trust me for other reasons. And with that, many of my unvaccinated patients will go out and get vaccinated of all different racial backgrounds. 
And what would you say to a parent who came to you that expressed concern about the vaccine? I would say the following to parents that have children between the age of 5 and 11, that the clinical trials, though not as extensive as the main trials, this was a few thousand patients, just under 3,000 that we looked at, or in this group of 5 to 11, just under 2,500, I should say. What we saw in this group was that the antibody levels went up quite significantly. There was no increase in side effects beyond what typically occurred in the general population, the fatigue, headache, local irritation, and there was no signal of a, a bad outcome. The dose is about a third of what was given to adults, and all of the information would suggest that this is very safe. But I would also add that we still need more data, that it will be something we'll continue to monitor. We have a number of ways of monitoring these vaccines. And that data, if there is a signal that sh shows any concern whatsoever, will trigger a stop in using that vaccine immediately. So I would encourage parents that it is very safe, but nonetheless, we will continue to monitor this very closely. I've been speaking with Dr. Bob Gillespie, a physician with Sharp Healthcare and founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. Dr. Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again, Jane. According to a San Diego City Council member, it's one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic. Outdoor restaurant dining extended onto sidewalks and parking areas was given permanent approval by the City Council last week. The emergency measure meant to help restaurants serve patrons outdoors during the height of the pandemic has proven so popular it's now a city initiative dubbed Spaces to Places. The move towards permanent outdoor dining is also supported by Steve Galasso, owner of Cafe Italia and president of the Little Italy Association. I certainly believe that El Fresco dining, as we like to call it here in Little Italy, it's the future of dining in not only San Diego, but I think throughout the nation. Uh, and as a small business owner in San Diego, I'm, I'm encouraged by the mayor's and the city council's decision to create a program. I think it's certainly going in the right direction here. New regulations for the structures and new fees were part of the City Council's approval. Joining me is Marco Limandri. He is Chief Executive Administrator of the Little Italy Association. And Marco, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Maureen. Now, looking back over the past year, how important has the opening up of outdoor dining areas been for Little Italy? It's been critical. I'm, I'm happy to say that Little Italy did not lose one restaurant or bar or coffee shop during COVID, which we believe is a, a tremendous achievement. It without the outdoor dining, because I think, as you recall, just about a year ago on Thanksgiving, everything shut down completely. And when things began to open up and outdoor dining was allowed and 25% indoor was allowed, that's when the restaurants were given the approval to build within the parking spaces. And the building of all those structures in parking spaces along India and Kettner, Columbia and other spaces kept these restaurants alive. So we didn't lose anybody and they were critical to the survival of the restaurant industry in Little Italy. Now, along with allowing the outdoor dining areas to become permanent, the city council has also imposed a number of regulations and fees. For instance, Roofs have to be removed from any outdoor dining area. No tents are allowed. Do you agree with these new rules? The issue is that the temporary building structures, which were allowed last February, expired in July because they have only a six-month life. 
they're really written for things like surface tents and pop-up tents and things like that, but they were applied to the outdoor structures. When we try to clarify why were we going to have to take down these roofs lower to 45 inches, you know, you couldn't run wires from the restaurants anymore. We were told that it was the state building code. Our fear, Moraine, was that San Diego might implement this according to the regulations, but other cities would not. So what we have now is you cannot have rooftops in San Diego, but you can in San Francisco. They're building them in Oakland as we speak. You can do them in LA. So it's each fire marshal's interpretation of the state building codes that has created this issue about no rooftops. And it's extremely frustrating. So you do have some argument with these actual regulations about the structures of the dining parklets. How about the new city fees for outdoor dining? They could cost restaurants several thousand dollars. Will that be feasible for most restaurants? If you go to India Street and you see that the restaurants spend a hell of a lot more than a couple thousand dollars for some of these structures. We're baffled by the fact that certain things were changed and other things were not. Outside of the roofs, let me ask you, what do you think in general about the fact that these outdoor dining structures have been approved permanently by the city council? It's great. We think that the spaces and places is great and we support the city. I don't think that the cost and the annual rental rate will be an ominous burden to a lot of the restaurants. Of course, we would like a lot of that waived. But we understand that there is a process for uh, monitoring and improvement. And we think the restaurants actually will take advantage of that all up and down India Street and throughout Little Italy. Now, outdoor restaurant dining structures, they usually eliminate parking spaces. Is losing that parking revenue a problem? We generate quite a bit of parking revenue. And I think that if we added up the spaces, we're not talking more than like 30 spaces or so. And then you just do the math. There are plenty of other spaces in Little Italy that can accommodate that. The real issue is, has the lack of parking impacted people's availability to come and visit Little Italy and park in Little Italy, et cetera? And if you come to Little Italy on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, you'd say, no, it has not. People figure it out. They either walk, they Uber, they Lyft, they park in the county parking structure, they trolley, they take scooters, whatever. But it has not impacted us negatively. How do you think that this works into this street dining, works into your idea of creating plazas for people to walk shop, for making Little Italy and a lot of other dining areas around the city more pedestrian friendly, more walkable? Well, I think, Maureen, as you know, we probably have more public spaces in Little Italy in the 48 square blocks than any other community in the county of San Diego. You know, there's a great quote that says, cars have never bought anything, but people do. So what we want to make sure is that we're able to accommodate the customers, the visitors, the residents, the people that work here all throughout Little Italy. And I think that we've really demonstrated that you can have walkability and still thrive. How difficult is it going to be for restaurants to dismantle the kinds of things that the city council wants them to dismantle, like roofs and take down tents and things like that? Is that going to be prohibitive for some people? You know, we've got a, a great group. We have a hospitality task force ever since July that they've known that this was coming. And we continue to update them on a monthly basis. So this is not surprising to a lot of people. Would they prefer to keep the roofs? Of course. But they realize that they can keep the platforms. They can keep the outdoor dining. We can replace it with umbrellas. They can have battery-operated heaters and lighting within their area. So I think that the key thing is the platforms and the ability to have additional space. Because as you know, people can serve 100% indoors now and outdoors. 
And that extra space has really made the difference for survival. We've heard from many restaurants that their business in October 2021 was better than October 2019, which tells us that this outdoor dining has really made the difference. So that's a positive thing. You know, I'm a native San Diegan. We have about 340 days a year that we can go outside. And in light of the fact that COVID had such a tremendous impact worldwide, people want to eat outdoors. They would prefer to be outdoors because the virus doesn't thrive as much outdoors. So we believe that this is part of an overall long-term change in the city of San Diego, where we should be doing this everywhere. We should be vacating streets everywhere. We should be providing outdoor dining, outdoor sitting, and enjoyment of this incredible microclimate that we have. So this is a really good step in the right direction. I've been speaking with Marco Lamandri. He is Chief Executive Administrator of the Little Italy Association. Marco, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Maureen. Anytime. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Nine million veterans in the U.S. get medical care through the VA each year. iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano is back with the second of her two-part series on the federal health care system. This is Kiowa Wolf's happy place. He used to come here with his service dog Marlo twice a week. You're crying for trees. Are you serious? Wolf is a Marine Corps veteran who was deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. He struggles with depression, thoughts of suicide, and post-traumatic stress. No traditional medications or therapy seem to help. It starts making me real edgy and, you know, always looking at people and checking for exits and pretty irritable. Because Wolf is a veteran, the VA healthcare system paid for him to try a special treatment called ketamine therapy here at this private doctor's office. Sitting in the courtyard outside the clinic, Wolf and his wife call the drug infusions life-saving. You know, I could just actually relax and put my arm around my son and talk to him and act like a human and not like T-101, the Terminator. But last year, the San Diego VA stopped paying for the treatments, 
impacting Wolf and 27 other mentally ill veterans. Emails show the VA's own doctors warned that cutting the veterans off from these treatments could put their lives at risk, but hospital personnel did it anyway. Since losing regular ketamine therapy, Wolf has spent more and more of his time lingering in bed. Suicidal ideations and and those thoughts and stuff, um, staying longer in my head. It's like I'm just another number. Again. An iNews source investigation has found that across the country, VA administrators and staff are overruling doctors' orders about what their patients need. Here in San Diego, an inspector general's report found that hospital staff stopped paying for ketamine treatments because they had trouble keeping track of paperwork. It was not a medical decision. Yeah, I think that million-dollar question is, is the who. Who, who, who makes this decision now? To help get his treatments back, Wolf has enlisted Renee St. Clair, a lawyer working for the veteran pro bono. He's come to know this treatment as the thing that gets him by week to week. And when you take that away from someone and you leave them with nothing, it's crushing. It's soul crushing. During a recent visit, St. Clair reviewed stacks of communication sent to the VA over the past year. May 7th, 2021, the clock is counting down toward Veteran Wolf's fate. The life of a good man and a good Marine April is at 30th, stake. 2021. I assure you, I will harness resources and get to the bottom of this deprivation. March 12th, the issue is bigger than Kiowa. The fury and fear of these vets will not be ignored forever. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. St. Clair catches her breath and thinks about all the work she's done to help Kiowa Wolf. I, I can feel it in my gut because I haven't gone back and read them since I wrote them. I I do it because I want there to be at least one day a week (laughs) that they know that Kiowa is still out there and he still needs help and that they shouldn't forget because we're not forgetting. The San Diego VA has started offering a low-dose version of the drug that many patients have not found therapeutic, including Wolf. Dr. Kathleen Kim, the hospital's chief of staff, says these veterans can't return to the private clinic because of legal concerns. She cited St. Clair's emails as the reason. And one of the former administrators of that clinic every Friday sends what I would call a nasty email complaining about this issue. And so at this point, we've turned it over to legal counsel. For Wolf, the VA's decision to stop paying for ketamine has felt like a betrayal. Feels like I'm getting stabbed in the back with a Bowie knife and getting it twisted. The veteran's home is full of keepsakes from his time in the Marine Corps. Pictures in uniform, insignias lining the walls, and a folded retirement flag in a shadow box. A lot of our brothers and sisters that don't uh, always get this because, you know, they... I don't always make it back from um, downrange. It's an honor to, to even be have, have this in my hands. When he has the strength to get out of bed, Wolf spends his time in the living room with his wife and kids, cooking meals and watching TV. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
these moments of joy are some of the best medicine Wolf can get. For KPBS, I'm my new source investigative reporter, Jill Castellano. If you are having thoughts of ending your life, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. For people getting out of jail or recovery centers, reintegration back into society can be a tough journey. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne introduces us to a nonprofit helping recently released individuals with support and jobs. On his days off, Nick Saldana gets ready to hit the waves. But life for Saldana wasn't always so sweet, as he says. Couch surfing, doing anything I got to do to get money, no matter what it was, as far as Stealing stuff from stores to eat, to going to different friends' house, seeing if they had food or whatever it was. So just couch surf life, basically. A final robbery and a tarnished record got Saldana nine years in prison. But now I'd see people coming back in like two or three times before I'd even get out. Like they'd be in there, I'd be in there for like a year. Three years later, they come back and they're like, you're still here? And I'm like, yeah, you're back. Saldana didn't want to be back. He completed his sentence by staying busy with fire camp, working out, and looking ahead to leaving his past behind. When Saldana was released, he got a job at a grocery store. It helped him pay rent and buy a car, but he wasn't happy. Wake up at four or five, go skate to work. If it was raining, to the bu- like skating to the bus in the rain, to showing up soaking wet, having to work in a dairy cooler and stuff like that, and they didn't care. That's when he got connected with Tim Lambesis, the founder of a nonprofit called Reintegration. It serves people who've served time or have left recovery programs by helping them get jobs. He helps Aldana get a stage crew job for TV shows and events, something he enjoys. Really, you just have to like go and just look for a job, like reach out to a bunch of different people every single day, apply everywhere, and sooner or later, like it's going to come. You know, it just depends on how fast and how motivated, like, like the person is, you know? Lampesis is the lead singer of the musical group As I Lay Dying. In 2014, Lampesis pled guilty for attempting to hire someone to murder his wife at the time. Because it's not really something I can, like, defend or explain in a way that somebody's going to be like, oh, I get it, because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not like a logical place in my life, you know, just like a dark in my life. Lambesa says he lives with regret every day. Something I wish I could take back every day, but it's nothing I can really do to take it back so much as I can just show that there's a very isolated moment in my life. The only way to prove that is by the way I live my life going forward. While he was in prison, Lambesis got a degree in addiction counseling. But a lot of the guys that I was incarcerated with, they didn't have the family support, the friends were not positive influences, um, and they might not have come out of prison with a, a particular job skill. So. I really wanted to help guys have all three of those resources. Reintegration works with different companies looking to hire and willing to give people a chance. They offer resume support and mock interviews to help them secure the job. A lot of these guys are more than capable on their own of, of getting a job and they have, um, you know, they have skills, they just need that support system and other guys need to actually develop the skills so they need to maybe come into like a lower level job temporarily, 
uh, work their way up so that they can have something that starts out like on the minimum wage level but eventually can become a career. Lambesis says everyone is facing different things and the organization has to take every case by case. But by offering support and helping people find a sustainable job, Lambesis says they are reducing recidivism and preventing old patterns from repeating. These are people that have been through things and a lot of times very heartbreaking things and so I think um, as we give it, some of these guys and, and hopefully some girls as well a chance to tell their stories that that only not only validates like what they've been through but helps some of these employers see that you know these are these are great people that have done a bad thing not not bad people this is reintegration's first year of operation and they've helped 13 people so far their office in carlsbad opens later this month lambesis hopes the organization can grow their staff employment opportunities and the number of people they help i think a little bit of the the narrative is changing um, especially around addiction but then with incarceration, it's like people are often defined by this worst moment in their life. And I personally feel like people are so much more than that. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. We already know that the California condor is an audacious species. The birds boldly bounced back from near extinction 30 years ago to a population of hundreds today flying free over the American Southwest. But wildlife researchers have now confirmed that California condors have made a reproductive breakthrough by producing offspring that have no father. It's called parthenogenesis. It's been seen in other bird species, but never before in the condor. The finding has startled wildlife experts and made movie buffs recall the female-only reproduction of baby dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Remember, life will find a way, as Jeff Goldblum said. Apparently it does. I'm wondering, how did researchers confirm that these two condor chicks had only one parent? Well, the researchers do something with the condors that they don't have a chance to do with a lot of other endangered species, and that is they test them genetically. Uh, because all of the condors were brought in uh, from the wild back in the 1980s, they've been able to basically identify each condor or the majority of the condors, uh, through their genetic uh, testing program. And they do that for a very simple reason. Uh, they want to be able to keep that population, which was so small to begin with, just 22 birds, uh, genetically diverse. In other words, they want, they want to make sure that uh, the right birds are mating with each other so that it increases the diversity of the species so that they have a better chance uh, to be resilient in the future uh, and, and that when the herd gets bigger like it is now or when the flock gets bigger like it is now, uh, then they'll be much more resilient to anything they might face. So if they find that the genomes are identical to the mothers, does that mean there was no male involved in their development? Well, here's what happens typically when you look at a genome, any genome, a parent uh, of a human baby. You look at that genome and you say, look, these are traits that came from the mother. These are traits that came from the father. And the resulting genome of the child is sort of a blend of the two. What they found in these cases is that the genomes of the children of two separate condors, the male children of two separate condors, uh, was exactly the same as the genome of the mother. And the only explanation for that is that there was no father involved in the fertilization process. 
How does parthenogenesis work? I mean, do we understand it? It's a very good question, and I'm not sure that there's a full understanding of exactly how it works. But uh, we do know that it does happen um, in other species. We know that um, there are some bugs. There are dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, as we all know. Reptiles, it happens. And, it, and also, it's been known to happen in birds. But the thing with uh, birds is you usually find it in settings where... Uh, all the birds in an enclosure might be female, so there's no chance for contact with a male, and yet they still produce offspring. Now, what they found is that some of the birds that were allowed to grow to term this way weren't viable. They weren't very strong genetically. This, In this particular case, in the condors, um, these two birds are, uh, from all intents and purposes, normal male condors. So uh, this hasn't affected them, uh, the offspring, in, in any negative way. And as you say, this type of female-only asexual reproduction, not only is it rare, but it's even more startling because in this instance, there were male condors present. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, uh, this is something that puzzled the, the researchers when they... Uh, found this uh, anomaly um, because the females that were involved, the two mother condors that were that were involved in this were in the same enclosure with fertile males. So they had an opportunity. And yet, um, as it happened, they went ahead and reproduced uh, without the help uh, of the male condor. And, and the researchers really don't have an answer as to why uh, that is the case. So if condors could achieve parthenogenesis, why did they almost go extinct 30 years ago? The condors were under extreme environmental pressure. Uh, their range was shrinking. They were uh, interacting more with uh, people and and. They're big, large birds, which makes them big, large uh, targets in, in some ways. And so the population went down. Parthiogenesis, I don't think, is a, a really a, a huge uh, reproductive tool. There are a couple things you have to, to recognize about parthenogenesis. Now, the females uh, can lay and fertilize an egg on their own, as the researchers have proven. But the, the, but the chick that they'll raise will always be a male. And that's because uh, the male condors carry the sex uh, hormone, right? So without fertilization, you can't have a female condor born. So that's kind of a dead end road over the long term. What's interesting and what one of the researchers uh, talked to me about was uh, this idea that maybe it's a mechanism for the species to eliminate uh, um, unhealthy traits from a population. So if uh, a number of males are, have this deleterious uh, gene expression in their genome, they can kind of skip over uh, allowing them to reproduce and they can reproduce themselves and then those males will die off and the ones that are produced by the female-only sperm uh, would take their place and, and, and reproduce naturally. So that's one possibility. But, uh, you know, the, the, the information is so new that they haven't had a really a good chance to, to say exactly why it happens and what the long-term impact might be. As you explained, researchers have an abundance of genetic information on the California condor, which makes me think, 
that if they had the kind of complete genetic information about other species that they have on the California condor, might they find that parthenogenesis happens more often in other species? Um, I think that's a fair assumption to make. Uh, you know, we don't have all of the, the the entire genetic library of crows or the entire genetic library uh, of uh, other large birds like eagles, but we do have the, uh, pretty much the entire genetic library of the California condor, and so findings like this uh, can be made. The only way you would, I you know, be able to tell in other species without these genetic markers is through observation. And then you'd have to have them in some kind of a contained area where they don't have exposure and then they still uh, raise viable uh, eggs. Uh, so it's much more complicated and, and really um, it's kind of a stroke of luck that, that they have this huge genetic resource available so that they can make this finding and then perhaps understand uh, what, how this functions within the species and how it helps uh, propagate that species over the long term. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Cinema Junkie dedicated last month to exploring spies on screen, starting with the fantasy world of Ian Fleming's James Bond. This month, Beth Accomando turns to John Le Carre's grittier and more realistic look at the world of espionage. In this excerpt from the podcast, Beth welcomes back spy aficionados Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest to talk about Le Carre and the film adaptations of his books. Welcome back. We're reconvening our group of spy aficionados to talk about a different kind of spy. Last time we discussed James Bond and the fantasy spy. Now we're going to turn to a more realistic look of the world of intelligence and counterintelligence, courtesy of author John le Carré. John le Carré's magnificent best-selling novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. I think it really was the 1960s where we start to see a real significant and distinct shift in tone. And the film for me that I remember vividly was the 1965 adaptation of John le Carré's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. We have to live without sympathy, don't we? We can't do that forever. One can't stay out of doors all the time. One needs to come in. In from the cold. That's one of my favorite all-time espionage movies. It's also one of those rare beasts, of a very, very faithful adaptation of its source novel. Yeah, and I think it's definitely um, a, a key milestone on the road, if not the, if not the origin of sort of the modern style of plausible, if not realistic, spy movie. Now, I'd say uh, since the war, our methods, our techniques, that is, and those of the communists have become very much the same. I mean, occasionally, we have to do wicked things. Very wicked things, indeed. But uh, you can't be less wicked 
than your enemies simply because your government's policy is benevolent. Yeah, I'd agree with Gary. I think this was really the one of the first films to grapple with the Cold War and the way that we think of it nowadays. You know, although it was something that Hollywood was thinking about even earlier. Billy Wilder, right, did one, two, three, which is a really fun movie, but it was filmed right when the Berlin Wall went up. And so they were like trying to figure out how do we incorporate this into this actual this movie that we're filming right now in Berlin. The Western sector, under Allied protection, was peaceful, prosperous, and enjoyed all the blessings of democracy. You know, Hollywood was trying to, as it always does, how can we monetize whatever's happening in the real world, right? And at that time, people were scared, people were worried about what was going on in the world, and starting to feel a little more jaded about the government, I think. And so I think you see some of that cynicism kind of start to leak into the movies that were released. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about John le Carré, and also a little bit about Ian Fleming as authors, and also as people who were involved in real-world espionage work and how they kind of translated their own personal experiences to literature and, and kind of made different choices about the kinds of literary work that they did. I owe a great deal to Fleming for one reason only, that Fleming produced, by writing that type of romanticized, heroic, amoral novel, he produced what you might call a counter-market, which I was able to satisfy. Well, I think when you look at the two authors, they are very different. And you can see that even in the way that they started in their career in espionage. John le Carre was recruited as a uh, college student to spy on his fellow uh, students by... Uh, <laughs> MI5, and then he later went on to work for MI5 as an adult, and then also MI6. So he had a real grounding in espionage. He was overseas in Germany, uh, recruiting and running agents in, in all accounts and in very difficult circumstances. And contrast that with Ian Fleming, who during World War II was like the assistant to a spy master um and his his thing was coming up with all sorts of crazy bizarre plans to try and put one over on the nazis and um i think when you look at that you can really see the distinct difference between how their approach to spying was and why lacare is known for his more you know gritty realism and fleming is known for more fantastical espionage um, I, I, well, I, the only thing I would add to that, because Jeff's done an excellent job of um, explaining the, the differences, really, is what, one thing that I think informs their respective writing is that in Le Carre's case, his father was a notorious con man. You know, he, he basically, uh, Le Carre led a life that was uh, sort of dictated by that, that, where he'd find himself in um, situations where he was sent to private school and then his father couldn't afford to pay the school fees. And... Uh, you know, he was incarcerated as well, and um, that's reflected in a number of Lacare's stories and, and background characters in his work. In contrast, of course, Fleming was a child of great privilege. He, he lost his father in the First War, but he uh, was raised in a, in a sort of very privileged context. And, uh, 
you know, he, as we've probably noted before, he set out to write novels that gave the British public, who was still going through post-war rationing and a windswept and wet island, uh, a view of the world beyond and luxuries and privilege and locations that many of them would never see in their lifetime. And certainly, you know, not until economical jet transport did did the public at large be able to experience such a thing. So, I think each of them um, and their writing. Uh, is is informed very much by that that very different experience. Do you think the fact that they both actually worked in espionage helped to make their novels kind of unique in terms of what was being offered to the public? Was that part of the draw and attraction that people had, or did people not know that that's what their background was? John le Carre very famously denied that he was working, you know, he had worked for any sort of secret service for a long time. He was just known as somebody who worked in the foreign office. No, I, I don't want to answer that question. But it was a pretty open secret that there was something more going on there. As soon as you say you're a spy writer, there is a certain portion of the audience that's going to assume that you have some sort of spy background, whether that's true or not. And People are very willing to uh, take that on and, and accept that mantle, whether it is true or not. Um, and so I think that's just part and parcel with spies because we're so used to them playing with the truth. Yeah, that's very true. It's a sort of unique position for an author to be in because, you know, people that write books about serial killers are not presumed to be serial killers themselves. So it's kind of unique to the to the espionage genre. I think in Fleming's case, he, he didn't really make any any bones about it, um, about having worked for Admiral Godfrey and uh, his role as described by by Jeff during the war. But uh, again, as Jeff just said, uh, Le Curry is infamously dissembled throughout his uh, writing career about the degree to which he did any spying and the significance thereof. And really, it was only in more recent later interviews that um, at least he dissembled a bit less. Um, and to some extent, I think that was a bit of a necessity after the biography was published. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest. To listen to the full podcast, go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie.